It's Monday, November 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Inflation is the latest issue that Biden and his administration need to get under control. Everything is more expensive right now, and supply chain issues continue to affect the economy. While Democrats try to bring down prices, there is some more urgency to pass Biden's Build Back Better plan, with some notable holdouts like Senator Joe Manchin, who was concerned with how it would impact inflation. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us for this. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg stepping into the spotlight, and Steve Bannon being indicted for contempt of Congress. Next, ever wonder why you feel like you might not fit into a particular political party? Americans are divided for sure, but it goes beyond a left or right thing. Even within each political party, there are deep divides. Pew Research sorted Americans' ideologies into nine distinct categories, four that lean left, four that lean right, and stressed sideliners in the middle. And for those that do fit into the center, they often hold little common ground. Baxter Oliphant, senior researcher at the Pew Research Center, joins us for the wide spectrum of political beliefs. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The BBB does a lot to reduce inflation because a lot of this inflation is caused by crimps in the supply chain. And the BBB has billions of dollars to deal with supply chain issues. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Well, the latest issue that the Biden administration is facing right now is inflation. Everything is more expensive right now. Supply chain issues continue to bog down the economy. And the holidays are pretty much here. We're you know, doing stories about how Thanksgiving's going to be more expensive. You got to do your sh- holiday shopping now. It's all kind of piling up. Democrats are obviously worried about the issue. They're worried about their majorities in Congress, so, you know, how all of this is going to be affecting that. And um, your colleague, Jonathan Allen at NBC News, wrote a little bit about how it's adding more pressure to Democrats to pass the Build Back Better plan right now. Democrats have struggled with how to talk about and what to do about the economic conditions in the United States. Obviously, we had sort of an unprecedented economic event last year when there was a pandemic and everything shut down and then what has been able to reopen. But it's not just in the United States, but across the globe, we're seeing historic levels of inflation. Japan notched the highest level they've had in 40 years. And really, Democrats are trying to figure out what to do. I mean, you can't tell voters things aren't really that bad when they're looking at their budget each month. And it's harder to pay for gas. It's harder to buy food for the table when you're planning for one last Christmas gift this year because the prices have gone up or because you can't find stuff because of supply chain problems. And so Democrats are really trying to figure out how to talk about this. And some of the pressure is on them to pass this Build Back Better, that they think that they will be able to get help to people quickly, particularly those child tax credits, that that will be money in people's pockets. And for that reason, they'll be able to convince people that they're doing something to help. Now, obviously, the counter argument to this is that it could cause more inflation because uh, it's pumping more money into the economy. Although critics of that say Japan didn't press stimulus like the United States did, and they've got inflation. So it's really not a direct cause of by our own uh, policies. Yeah. And then you look at some of the other traditional remedies to inflation, and that would be raising interest rates. Nobody wants to do that. So it's a pretty tough situation to handle. And, and, you know, we're talking about the Build Back Better plan. We're still getting, um, you know, guys like Senator Joe Manchin saying, hey, we need to start slowing this down because we don't know the effects on the economy. So I I think he even called it the inflation tax. Uh, I I know Republicans are seizing on that term. And uh, again, Joe Manchin's trying to slow things down. 
He is concerned that this extra money into the economy would cause more inflation or that it would make the problem bigger um, as it already is. And and I think that really he's had that concern and he's always been quite concerned about spending any level of money. I think what's important to understand about the Build Back Better plan, it's not just money. You know, when we were looking at COVID bills, that was a lot of just throw money at problems and try to get it fixed. The Build Back Better bill would create new programs and sort of fundamentally change some of the ways that the U.S. federal government functions, you know, more programs and social services than we've ever had before. And it really would be a departure from some of the ways the U.S. has approached government spending thus far. President Biden is also going to be signing the more traditional infrastructure plan that was already passed. And uh, we're going to see Treasury Secretary Pete Buttigieg come into more focus as he's going to have a lot of power, a lot of discretion when it comes to handing out these funds for the infrastructure. I think out of the $550 billion of new spending, he's going to be able to allot some $120 billion in the form of grants. So he, he's got a lot of power, but he's also getting a lot of uh, flack from guys like Ron DeSantis, uh, Ted Cruz, when uh, he starts talking about racial equity, building racial equity into the infrastructure plans. Mayor Pete, as he was known when he ran for president in 2020, is really returning to the spotlight for his role in implementing this infrastructure bill. And he does have a lot of leeway to make a lot of decisions about how grants are given, although the grant process is largely driven by career federal employees who have written grants and decided on grants in the past. So is it quite as much flexibility as I think he would like? But that's right. He's going to have to start looking at these programs. The administration is going to have to start awarding money in these programs. And I think we're going to see them trying to do what they can to get the money out as quickly as possible so that communities really start to see change on the ground and they start to see people put to work with shovels and backhoes and start working on these programs that they fought so hard for. The other thing that we saw this past Friday was former Trump advisor Steve Bannon. He's been indicted by a federal grand jury for contempt of Congress. This is after he refused to answer, you know, any questions for the House committee that was investigating the January 6th Capitol riot. It's two counts of contempt, it seems like, uh, refusing to appear for deposition and then declining to produce documents. I think they said he's going to be surrendering himself on Monday. What are we looking at with him? What is he facing with all of this? This is an unprecedented move by the Justice Department. They presented the charges to a grand jury, and that grand jury chose to indict Steve Bannon for his refusal to cooperate with Congress. And he could face steep fines. He could face time in prison. He's going to appear before a judge. He's going to have to be arraigned. We're going to have to hear him make the case that he should not abide by these subpoenas. And I really think we're going to see this litigated, this argument by former President Trump that executive privilege should hold, that should protect him from having to be able to do this. Thus far, judges have not been inclined to grant that to the former president. But I think Steve Bannon's going to try again to make that assertion. And what are they looking from him specifically? Because he left the White House, you know, way before the January 6th riot happened. So what are they looking for him from him? Right. So he was no longer employed by the White House, but he was still operating as a political advisor to the president. He was advising his presidential campaign and then the effort to overturn his defeat. He was involved in those discussions and those strategizing. He was, as we understand, talking to the president um, in the days leading up to and during we believe, on January 6th. So they're looking for communications and documents that have to do with his communications with the president um, surrounding that riot. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
And then we ran some statistics on it. And as you mentioned, we identified these nine groups. We found four that are oriented toward the Republican Party. That means you more of the people in those groups say they're either Republicans or lean towards the Republican Party. And we found four groups that are oriented towards the Democrats. Joining us now is Baxter Oliphant, senior researcher at the Pew Research Center. Thanks for joining us, Baxter. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk about an interesting uh, look that you guys did into the political parties. You know, oftentimes we just think of liberal and conservatives, Democrat and Republicans, but uh, very little wiggle room for a third party, really. But, you know, when you look at these two groups, even within them, there's so many, so much diversity, right? You guys took a look into kind of how they they space out and kind of came up with nine different categories across these two major political groups. And that's why a lot of people might find it difficult to fit in one particular group. Uh, you know, they say, I might be socially liberal, but fiscally conservative and vice versa. It's tough to really pinpoint people down. So Baxter, tell us a little bit about the research you guys did, and then let's break these groups down. What we did is we conducted a survey with uh, a little bit more than 10,000 Americans over the summer is when we did most of this. And then we ran some statistics on it. And as you mentioned, we identified these nine groups. We found four that are oriented toward the Republican Party. That means you more of the people in those groups say they're either Republicans or lean towards the Republican Party. And we found four groups that are oriented towards the Democrats. And we had one where it's about evenly split between Republicans and Democrats. So it does seem that the majority of people do kind of identify with the two major parties, but with some slim room in the middle for certain people. Polarization between Republicans and Democrats is still in this in what we found is there's really big gaps between these groups. But the approach that we took in not just restricting it to the two parties allowed us to see that there are some differences even within the parties. So there's, for example, these four groups that say they're Republicans, but when we ask a lot of questions about their views about politics, their values that they bring to politics, then we can dive into that. And we will see there are things they agree about that unite them as Republicans, but there's still things that they disagree about. So for example, we found one of our Republican groups, which we call the populist right, that is much more skeptical about the economy and its fairness than other Republicans. The populist right, they're much more likely to support raising taxes than the rest of the party. They're much more likely to say that the profits corporations earn are not fair, which aren't the attitudes that might typically be associated with people who call themselves Republicans. These are also people with a less formal education and uh, mm -hmm. most likely to live in rural areas as well. Yes, Yes. Yeah, well, it's an interesting one because I, you would uh, kind of say that out. And those uh, tend to be, it looks like they'd be probably uh, supporters of former President Donald Trump, but they're also more willing to raise taxes, which is kind of a, you know, a, a weird uh, classification for them, I guess. The populist right, they're some of the strongest supporters of uh, former President Trump. But we find another group with different attitudes about taxes and the economy that are also very strong supporters of the former president. And this is our faith and flag conservatives group. And these two groups, the faith and flag conservatives and the populist right, they both make up about 
a quarter of the people we surveyed who call themselves Republicans. So they're a big chunk of the party. They both support Trump, but they have different attitudes where the populist right group has you know, a little skeptical about the economy. The faith and flag conservatives, they're the folks who really are active in their faith compared to a lot of other groups. They want to see the government support religious values. They see religion as very important to the country. They're also the most likely group to say that the U.S. is the best country in the world. So they're they're very patriotic and very yeah. religious and also a, a key part of the Republican coalition. In this Republican-leaning group, we also have the committed conservatives. These are probably what you would call more of like your traditional conservative, it seems like, pro-business, limited government. A lot of them are less enthusiastic about President Trump and uh, big fans of Ronald Reagan. And then we have those uh -huh. that are called the ambivalent right, which are an interesting group. These are the youngest of the right-leaning groups. Yeah, uh, this ambivalent right group is very interesting. They're the only Republican-oriented group where the majority don't call themselves conservatives. Many of them do call themselves conservative, but the biggest group within this uh, ambivalent right call themselves moderates. They see themselves as moderates. They're the most diverse Republican-oriented group. About 65% of them are non-Hispanic whites, where in the other Republican-oriented group, it's 80% or more that are white. And this ambivalent right group is particularly interesting because what seems to unite them to the Republican Party is they are conservative on many economic issues and issues with the government. Like, like other members of the Republican Party, they think the government's doing too much. They'd like to see a smaller government, but they're more moderate on social issues. So for example, they're quite a bit more moderate on abortion compared to the rest of the party. What do we see when we're looking at the democratic leaning groups? We see progressive left, establishment liberals in this group. We're also looking at uh, the democratic mainstays and the outsider left, which is kind of similar to the ambivalent right group. Yeah, on the Democratic side, we have, uh, as mentioned, we have these four Democratic-oriented groups. As you mentioned, the outsider left is a little bit similar to the ambivalent right. They're young. They're the youngest group. The outsider left is the youngest group. What's very interesting about them is they have liberal views on almost every issue we asked about on the survey, but they're still not crazy about the Democratic Party. They say they don't really feel represented by the party. They say they often struggle to find candidates that represent their views. So while they're not Republicans, the outsider left, they, they're very cold. We asked what's called a feeling thermometer, where people can rate how warmly or coldly they feel towards the part, uh, Republicans and Democrats. They're very cold towards Republicans, but they're only lukewarm toward Democrats, which is, which is very interesting. And when we look at the other groups, progressive lefts, those are likely to side with Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, establishment liberals. I guess they would say they're a little bit more, uh, a little bit more moderate. Oh, the Democratic mainstays are more moderate uh, in their leaning. Mm -hmm. And the establishment liberals, I, I guess, uh, uh, they're generally upbeat about politics in the country. They agree with, I guess, the Democratic leadership as well. Yeah, the establishment liberals are the most optimistic about how things are going in the country right now. What was so interesting about this survey, these 10,000, you know, approximately 10,000 Americans we interviewed, they're members of the Pew Research Center's American Trends Panel. So we randomly recruited these people, but they take surveys for us uh, about once or twice a month. And so we can compare. We, we did this main survey over the summer, but then in September, we re-interviewed these people. 
And in September, the establishment liberals were the group most likely to approve of Joe Biden's performance as president. Other Democratic groups were approving, but they were the highest. And so they are a group that's a little more comfortable with where the leadership is on the party. They're more open to compromise than particularly the progressive left. And what's very interesting, so this is the eighth time the Pew Research Center and, and the, the organizations that came before it have done what we call our political typology. And usually there's only been one group of liberals. This is the first time that we have two groups of liberals. So we have the establishment liberals and the progressive left, where they're both very liberal, but they do tend to have different kind of attitudes, where the establishment liberals are a little more optimistic, the progressive left a little bit less optimistic, want to see bigger changes want to confront the problems they care about a little more aggressively. Okay, so those are the main eight groups for either the Democratic leaning or the Republican leaning. Who's in the middle? <laughs> and I love the uh, way I love the way you you label them the stressed sideliners. Yeah, this is a very interesting group. They are our least politically engaged group. But that's why that's why we're calling them sideliners. They're not totally disengaged from politics, but compared to the other groups, they're much less likely to have voted in 2020. This is another advantage of them coming from our American Trends panel. We have data on a validated turnout, which means we, we match them to turnout records, and they were much less likely to vote. They're much less likely to talk about politics kind of growing up, to like, you know, they're just less engaged politically. So that's the sideliners part of the name. And we call them stress sideliners because this group also stands out for being a bit more likely to come from lower income families. And they're the most likely group to say when we surveyed them in September that their finances are either not great or really bad. So these are people that are not politically active, but are very concerned about how the economy is going more likely to be right. low income. You asked this question in you know, the articles that you guys presented, is there a middle in politics today? And I thought that was the interesting thing because a lot of people I bet are willing to say I'm a, an independent or I'm something like this. I don't want to fit into one of the other parties. And going off of you know these categories that we've presented so far, the ones in the middle are the stress sideliners, the outsider left, and the ambival ambivalent right. But they just have so little in common politically, which is that interesting uh, dichotomy there. Yes, it is very interesting in how the data really does reveal that these groups that we call kind of Republican leaning, so the ambivalent right or the outsider left, you know, they lean left, but they lean those directions. But that doesn't mean they're like very close to the other side on a lot of issues. Right. Both of these coalitions have a lot that unites them. And a lot of it is just their views towards government, you know, among the Republican groups, they all want a smaller government among the Democratic groups, they think the government should doing be doing a little bit more. But there are other ways in which they do break away a little bit. And how we define the middle also makes a big difference. Like, as you mentioned, there are these three groups that are kind of the most middly, but they're parts of the others that you could also see potentially being peeled away from one side or the other on some issue. Baxter Oliphant, senior researcher at the Pew Research Center. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.